This episode of Dialogues in Dermatology has been sponsored by Kara Therapeutics. Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome, everyone, to another episode in Dialogues in Dermatology. Today, we are excited to talk all about pruritus and itch. My name is Stephen Chen. I will be your host for this episode, and I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Brian Kim, who is an associate professor of dermatology at Washington University in St. Louis. His clinical and research career has really centered around atopic dermatitis and itch, and I am thrilled that we all get to learn from him today. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Stephen, for having me. So I'm going to jump right in because we don't have that much time and there's so much I want to talk about. The first thing is, as a practicing dermatologist, we have so many patients who are itchy because they have a rash or they're just itchy in general. So just a big high-level question. What exactly is itch and how would you define it? Yeah, I don't define it. It was defined by Samuel Hafenrupp, I think, German physician, well over 300 years ago as an uncomfortable sensation that elicits a desire to scratch. So that's really the definition of itch. And then in recent years, we've defined it pathologically as chronic itch being when itch now lasts rather arbitrarily six weeks or longer. Got it. So chronic itch, just basically six weeks. I feel like we use that six week cutoff for a lot of different things for urticaria, for itch and all that kind of stuff. So Brian, yes, absolutely. We have that definition of itch from way back when. I'm curious how you organize the world of itch in your mind. When I have a patient come to see me, I was always taught to think about it as itch with rash and itch without rash. I'm just curious if you have an organizational framework for when you see an itch patient. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's very important the conceptual framework that you laid out is that there's lots of ways you can go about it. I think the point being is that if you have an itch with the rash, you're actually implying something a little bit more, I think, in some sense. What you're saying is that you think the etiology of the itch is related to a primary dermatologic disorder that is said rash, right? Mm-hmm. And that's an important distinction because in the vast majority of those cases, if not all of them, if the rash is the cause, you treat the rash and atopic dermatitis included, you know, and I really fundamentally believe that atopic dermatitis in its primary kind of form is a rash first. It's not an itch. Mm-hmm. And I know we say it's itch that rashes, but it really is a rash that it becomes an itch. And, but then there are other conditions as you're alluding to that are where it's really just itch and it's unclear how much the rash, even if there is any, part of this other than that it came on as a result of the, the itch. So in dermatology, we say, well, is you know, one of the first things we teach our first year residents, the difference between a primary and secondary process, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's a fundamentally important concept in itch as well. So is itch the primary process or is it the secondary process? And that heavily informs not just an intellectual, something I can pontificate about, but that it informs drug development, it informs personalized therapy, particularly right now when there are essentially no FDA-approved drugs for chronic itch. All you can do is take a personalized medicine approach. And so then you need to think about what is 
pathophysiologically causing the itch in this patient. Clinical trials, forget about it. In this patient, that's the problem in front of me, right? And and you know, I'm a big fan of clinical trials. And I tell my residents, when you're in with the patient, the clinical trial does not matter anymore. The, the clinical trial is a completely contrived tool that you designed to get to a certain endpoint in a statistical way. The patient does not care in front of you. If you say, oh, we don't have any FD approved, and that's not on label, they don't care. Right. 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 You're not showing your disclosure slide at the beginning of every patient encounter (laughs) saying, we're talking unlabeled drugs here. Yeah. So speaking of clinical trials and speaking of where the field is headed, can you tell us what's new in itch? You know, I think a lot of us in in our derm residencies, we learn a lot about the neuropathic elements that make up how the sensation of itch is transmitted. We talk about histamine, we talk about all these different processes, but what's actually new in the world of itch, both from a pathophysiology standpoint and maybe from a therapeutic standpoint? I think that's kind of the, where are we at question, which is we're at a very exciting place in 2021. I did this dialogues a number of years ago and it was mm-hmm. I, honestly, it wasn't that exciting for me because I was talking about a lot of off-label stuff that I knew, oh, it kind of works here and there, and it sure was helpful. But we're entering a new phase, to your point, where now we're going to be backed up with clinical trials. We're going to have phase three clinical trials data that's going to tr- prove it. So what's happened in the field? Okay, so w- why has itch been ignored for over 300 years after it being defined? It's one of the biggest <laughs> in medicine almost. How did we miss it kind of scenarios, right? Mm. For one, there's a lot of things that there's some philosophical things that come into play. And then there are scientific things that come into play. And then there are clinical things that come into play. And it was kind of the perfect storm of the disease that we would ignore for a long time. And I hope you don't mind me kind of getting into the historical elements of it because- No, I love it. This is great. You know, because I think it also tells us how we can fall short Mm -hmm. and how we need to change the medicine. So who's the author that talked about the life of a cell? You know, those great books about medicine and biology. Oh gosh, you're going to make me Google something, aren't you? Let me... Oh my God. (laughs) Uh, I'm embarrassed that I don't remember because I I was very influenced by kind of path into medicine. And anyway, he was talking about how in his father's generation, what made someone a great clinician was that they could diagnose somebody right? That was the paragon of excellence in medicine, right? I would say even like, probably like, you know, that that's kind of the Osler model in some ways, right? It wasn't treatment. A lot of people don't realize that. And what it meant is that if you could walk into a room and hold a patient's hand and tell them when they're going to die, you're a great clinician. And then he was talking about how in his era that it became the era of treatment, right? And I think the tail end of that is kind of when I entered medicine and then it became more than treatment. It came kind of extending survival and that's where checkpoint inhibitors. But I think the kind of next era of medicine is, is quality of life. And that's where itch falls in. And, and it's, it's not about, can we make people live longer? Can we just put you on a machine and make you live longer? It's, can you have meaningful life? And that's where itch really comes in. Cause it's, it's really a quality of life issue, right? You're never going to die from itch but you may want to die from it. And why did we miss it all? Well, I think a couple of things, there are some misunderstandings. For one, itch is a very shameful symptom. No one wants to talk about their itch. We love talking about our pain. You know, a high school athlete loves talking about how he injured his shoulder and in the game and how this is such, almost talks about it with pride, right? Hmm. Itch is not like that. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I never thought about it that way. Yeah. No, in fact, my patients are very embarrassed to even bring it up. Mm -hmm. so, let alone, are they even going to talk about it? How are they going to advocate for it? How are you going to have a foundation for itch? So that's gone, right? And then there was a scientific misunderstanding that goes back to Von Frey, who's a great scientist. But there was this idea that, and there were some primary observations that if you, you know, put spicules in the skin, you know, it would cause pain, but there would be an after it, after sensation that was itchy. Mm -hmm. So the hypothesis that lasted for a long time is that itch must be a mild form of pain. Well, you know, we have pain centers, chronic pain clinics, you know, there's some things went bad, right? <laughs> but we have pain. And the great thing about pain is that it is, but now we thought, oh, if we just fund more pain research, or if we just understand pain better, we'll be fine. We'll solve it. This riddle never did. And then in 2007, Zhu Feng Chen discovered the true bona fide first itch receptor. And this is why our center here was started. Well, scientifically, that was a huge shift. And science matters, right? I think COVID told us that. It's not just, I feel like there was a time in medicine when science was just this kind of great thing that we learned and it, you know, it gave us this way of talking fancy. And then we just would leech people, right? <laughs> I don't know. You know, I mean? <clears throat> you know, so, but I think it's changed, right? Where medicine and science is so coupled now, where within a year, you could have a vaccine based on this technology, right? right. Or this idea. Right. You know, it's really changed. And that's definitely been my career. Um, and it's why I enjoy it. And what happened was that people said, oh my gosh, look, we've been thinking about it's the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And there's a target we can hang our hat on. And now we can actually go after this. And regardless of whether that target I'm talking about is GRP, but regardless of whether that's an important target or not, which it very well could be, it was a conceptual shift, right? And it said, oh, this is something we can do then that happened, right? And so then what happened, a lot of the work that we did was we said, okay, well, if there is our true itch pathways, there must be something more going on here between the immune system and the nervous system mm -hmm. that would tell us that there are other itch circuits. And we've known for a very, very long time, this kind of ancient inflammatory axis that was evolved to kick out worms which is the type two inflammatory axis we knew was strongly associated with itch. Mm -hmm. We never knew why. And we linked that. And then what happened now we bring back to the clinical trials. You have these drugs that were already in development for atopic dermatitis. And with, with the scientific premise that we're going to go after inflammation and lo and behold, suddenly these inflammatory pathways are decorating the nervous system. Mm -hmm. And so then a lot of these companies, and you'll see this in 2021, pivoted a lot in terms of their design, their endpoints, the publications, and realized very quickly, and drugs like Dupilumab taught us this, is that itch really matters. Because the thing about itch is you don't know how much it matters when you're talking about a shameful symptom until you get rid of it. Mm -hmm. And so we almost learned more from actually doing something about it. Because then the patients came out of the woodwork and they said, oh my gosh, I was miserable. Mm-hmm. You know, this was horrible, right? Now they're talking about it. And then I think drug companies start to realize, oh, wow, we need to and now think about this much more seriously. I know that was long-winded, but it brought us to where we are. Now we have agents that were already in development, but now you have other agents that were now conceived in some ways from the get-go to go after itch. And now that's what we're seeing in 2021 with the new developments. There, there are drugs that and companies that are just saying, we're going to go after itch. 
this is it. This is kind of how we started and this is how we're going to end it. That's fascinating. Thank you for taking us through that. Cause I do think that it's easy to condense all of that into some without really appreciating the path or the time and the effort that it took to get the field to this point. And so I think that's obviously so, so helpful to put everything into context. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about these kind of new agents that are coming out? Are they different than the agents that we kind of force into using in an off-label way when we actually get to target based on new information about these new itch pathways? Um, What's different about what's coming out on the market soon or what's being studied, I should say? Yeah, so it's funny because one example would be the cytokine IL-31. We knew about it for a long time. Stacey Dillon discovered it when she was at Cymogenetics. And then it took a number of years for Martin Steinoff's group to show that IL-31 is actually acts like a neurotransmitter. You know, it hits the nervous system. And that science is really important because then it formed the development of nemalizumab, which is now a 31 receptor blocker monoclonal that's not approved. It's in development, right? Right. And one of the things about it is that I think what it did was it informed even the clinical trials and it actually made itch as a primary endpoint. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a say, well, a lot of people I think don't realize this. Itch still is a secondary endpoint for FDA approval for atopic dermatitis. So it's not primary, right? Despite it being the central symptom, right? The thing the patient cares about the most, but what, happened with IL-31 is it, and I'm putting my own speculation here is that based on what happened is that they said, look, we're not going to worry about inflammation. We don't even know if this drug is that great for inflammation. 31, it's a little mixed in terms of what it does inflammatory wise, mm. but we're going to just go after itch because that's what this thing does. So that's, that's one example. And then you have these other drugs that are emerging like the Kappa opioid agonists, Kara therapeutics, Trevi therapeutics, we're trying to push this through. And these class of drugs are, in my mind, in large part, neuromodulatory, right? So all itch at the end of the day, whether it's inflammatory or not, has to end up in the nerve and it has to end up either in your spinal cord or your brain, right? For it to have an effect. So, so the idea is that if you can just modify the nervous system with neuromodulatory drugs, then perhaps you could have an effect on the itch regardless of what's happening upstream. And so that's a big paradigm shift. Primary endpoints for these trials are going to be itch and itches will be considered a disease entity unto itself. It might have to be codified as, you know, notalgia parasitica, you know, mm-hmm. uremic pruritus, parigo nodularis, but these are truly itch disorders. It's hard to call these things rashes, like you said. I think that speaks to our experience as dermatologists when we see patients who come in and as you implied and insinuated, there is, I never thought about applying the word shame to the symptom of itch before. And I think that's fascinating because it is, you know, I see a lot of very sick dermatology patients and it's usually not the sick patients who have that anguish. It's the itch patients that have really have this burden that they feel like they finally get to unload when they've gotten to the point of coming in to see the dermatologist to address it. And it's, it's so great to hear that the state of the science is turning toward looking at itch as a primary endpoint, as a disease entity unto itself. Uh, So that's wonderful to hear. Could you tell us a little bit more about your personal work in this field? It's always hard to brag about yourself, I know, but what are you most proud of in terms of your contributions to the field of itch and to the field of dermatology? 
I think what I'm perhaps most proud of is that we were able to make some key discoveries that made people take itch seriously. You know, and I, I think that's the thing is, that, and as I kind of alluded to earlier, I, I think that if you can bring real science to it, then you convince a very diverse group of stakeholders that this is a worthwhile venture. Absolutely. Right. And whether it's patients, foundations, NIH, mm-hmm. pharmaceutical companies, and all of these things matter. And I think that for me, the identification, some of it was just luck, but the fact that we were able to discover that therapies that were already in development could work in a very, very different way. Mm-hmm. You know, that IL-4 and 13 actually act on the nerve, that these processes are very much dependent on Janus kinases, that this is actually a totally new way to design trials, think about it, look at high resolution itch. And that now, you know, in to- it's it, 2021 is just a really gratifying year for me. We're going to have probably four, five, six drugs approved mm. along these pathways. And not only just that they're approved, but they're approved with these endpoints in mind that we've been talking about for the last seven years as being what we think is going to happen in our patients. And I think at the end of the day, you know, the naive part of me that I didn't realize before was I thought that if we made a great discovery that it would solve itself. But I've seen a lot of great science die in journals and never make it more patients, right? right? And it's unfortunate. So as a physician scientist, what I've realized is that what I always say is our papers are always the beginning of the journey. They might be the end of our scientific journey, but they're the beginning of our journey to take this to our patients. And I'm proud that we've been able to do that to some degree and that hopefully there's less suffering from this. Because, I mean, try telling your patient that there's no ICD-10 code for what they have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a hard thing to tell a patient. Right. (laughs) You know? Yeah. You know? I mean, I, that's, that's so, just hearing you say that there's so many potential, um, approvals for drugs to relate to this, like already in my mind, I've got like my five patients that I know that I want to try these these drugs on because they are the patients that have the burden of their disease is so, so heavy that I think the dermatologist really gets super involved with our itch patients because we know every symptom. We know when they can't sleep at night, we've spent so much time with them. And so I think that that's so exciting to think about the revolution that is hopefully uh, what we'll see in 2021. Can I ask, how did do you find yourself interested in this area of dermatology? You've kind of talked about, you've talked about obviously the importance of itch and the contributions that you've made, but what was the initial spark that got you interested in studying itch and atopic dermatitis and all these new pathways? I mean, to be completely candid, it didn't start with me appreciating this unmet need. I also overlooked it, but my scientific career started with understanding the immune mechanisms that cause the rash. I was actually originally more interested in the rash. But what happened was when we made a couple key discoveries and then I left, I was left with kind of this kind of almost like early midlife scientific crisis where I thought, <laughs> what do I want to do next? I don't know if anything I want to do in this area of immunology is that interesting to me anymore. Mm-hmm. And at that time I was looking for a job and they had just started this center for study of itch here. And I met with the neuroscientists here and they were all excited about the immune system. And I was all excited about the nervous system. And we started sharing ideas and I realized, oh my gosh, this is it. Mm-hmm. This is the huge uncharted area. And I was like this, I remember the moment I realized that and I thought, this is what I need to, I need to become a, more of a neuroscientist. Mm-hmm. 
And then as I started doing that, what happened was that we would, every time we'd publish a paper, our clinic would get flooded with these calls from all mm-hmm. over the world. You know, because the patients all the when you publish a paper, that means that there's a therapy like in a week, right? right. And they're very hopeful. And, and we thought, oh my gosh, there's so much demand for this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so then I start to focus my clinic completely on itch. Uh, I'm not a general dermatologist anymore. Uh, haven't been for seven years. And, and there's a tremendous demand there. And in the clinic, it was a lot more just kind of helping patients one by one, right? Case by case evidence-based medicine goes out the window because there's no evidence. And so it's it almost like us straddling these two crazy worlds where I was on the one hand, this hardcore basic scientist. On the other hand, you'd almost think I was like an, you know, this kind of holistic healer because I was having to use anything at my disposal to try to help that one patient. Right. 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 And there was this kind of gap and that gap hopefully will be closed by the clinical trials now. So that's so exciting. I, I would just, point out the irony of you stating that I was a dermatologist who was no longer interested in studying rash anymore because, you know, because itch, like everything we've been talking about, itch is its own thing. And it's amazing to see your work kind of impact that field and to see it really push the field forward is really exciting. We don't have that much time left, but if it's okay with you, I would love to leave some of our perhaps younger listeners with some sage words of advice from you. I'm just curious if you could uh, provide any words of advice for potential future academic dermatologists who might want to pursue a similar career to you. What would you say to them as they're thinking about their future career? Obviously, it's a bit different depending on who the young person is. But I think that what I would say is that you have to be very focused. And by focus, I mean that we're in a great specialty. There's so many great things about it, but there are also a lot of temptations away from the hard work that needs to be done and the hardship that's inherent to great accomplishments. And I feel like a lot of people kind of get distracted. And I think that in the field, find what you're passionate about, find that unmet need and go after it very, very tenaciously. Don't let up on it and try to bring things outside the field into it, you know, and, and, and try to just ask the hard questions. I think that even when we're in grand rounds, press the hard questions, right? It's great if you see an interesting case, but so what? Mm-hmm. Why? What are you going to do about it? You know, you know, I just, how are how are we going to press forward? I think sometimes we lose that a little bit in dermatology because we're a quick in and out specialty, mm-hmm. right? We see a lot of patients who are high volume, but I mean, that would be my advice. It's, I know it's a little bit of a, almost kind of a push, pushing advice, you know, way let's do better. Mm-hmm. But I think that's how I genuinely feel. Uh, there are too many kind of th- distractions, I think, in, in the specialty because there's so many things we can do but ask the hard questions and go after them. That's wonderful advice. I love the idea of, I think we've all seen interesting cases and we've written, especially as medical students, we're writing case reports. And, you know, I I think that's wonderful advice to say, great, you've written the case report. What's next? So what, like, what are you going to do to help that patient? I love that advice. I think it's not just for our future academic dermatologists. I think that's for every practicing really physician out there to really think about the next step. So Thank you for that advice. I will take it. Even as an attending dermatologist, I will take it to heart in my own career for the future. 
Brian, I want to thank you so much for joining me today for our episode for Dialogues in Dermatology centered around itch and the new pathways and the new direction that itch is going. Just really appreciate all of your time today. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our listeners before we sign off? Oh, no, I, th- I think that's it. Thanks for listening. And thanks for, uh, you know, giving us the opportunity to kind of put itch in the forefront of dermatology and medicine. Wonderful. Well, thank you for all your contributions to the field and specifically to the field of itch. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Dialogues. Until next time. Bye, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your editor-in-chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you. This episode of Dialogues in Dermatology has been sponsored by Kara Therapeutics.